0: Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cyclic community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. His passion for racing, the curiosity for the people stories, And the opportunity to test the latest bikes and products gave Zap Espinosa the love for his job as a cycling magazine editor for over 30 years. In a very personal and passionate way, he is sharing insights on how the mix of BMX, moto, and cycling cultures have been a constant battle of egos, all to improve the product and grow the sport to where it is today. As a journalist, he conveys his experience and spices things up with his very personal own protest view, coming straight from his desire to offer a critical eye to make things better. We talk about his first ride experience on MTB disc brakes, the constant battle and arguing for the right stuff, how Mr. Ernesto Conago let him see his private bike museum, and why compliance has become the dirty word in the bike industry. Enjoy the ride. Zap, good morning. How are you? Good
1: morning, Dirk. How are you? Good, good.
0: Good, good. It's the end of my day. It's the beginning of your day out there in Pasadena. Yeah. Do yeah. you have, you have a, fence, a window you can can look outside and tell us what you see?
1: Um, I don't know if you can hear Woody, the Basset Hound, next door, but he's now on... Standing guard, so you'll hear that. But uh, no, just uh, uh, another beautiful Southern California day uh, nice. that we're so uh, happy to have. Um, so yeah, it's all good here in SoCal.
0: Nice. So Zap, if uh, my math is right, um, you're no in date. the, the <laughs> <no>. <laughs> you're in the magazine business for the past thirty four years, and and right now you're the editor director of uh, Road Bike Action. What, what do you love about your work?
1: Everything. Um, I've been at, so yeah, since I started in October of 1986 at mountain bike action, um, I was there for about six or seven years. Then I got hired away by bicycling to kickstart their own mountain bike magazine. Um, of which you and I had some time together on.
0: Yes. Uh,
1: Good times. I was there for about 10 years. Uh, then got ousted uh and then um came back to high torque publications um like in, i don't know 10 years ago now cripes uh and so uh to, to start road bike action which is a brand you know uh <clears throat> excuse me high torque did road bike action i did the very first issue of road bike action in 1993 uh uh, that was a was when, uh, the big story, in that issue was when I got to go, Paul Turner from Rockshox invited me to go along with him to Perry Roubaix where they right. were fitting, uh, the, the SL forks on about, you know, with Greg Lamont and a whole bunch of guys. So that was the issue. We, we were, we famously, we took a DeRosa team bike, uh, with Toby Henderson up to Big Bear and I wasn't there, thankfully, but, uh, John Carr was there. And of course, John Carr, our, our longtime photographer for all the magazines and, from a BMX background and Toby Henderson, a professional downhill racer, somehow they got the idea of like that jumping the DeRosa would be a great idea and a great cover photo, which it was, uh, but it caused some level of scandal in the bike world that a bunch of stinking mountain bike and motorcycle guys would start a road bike magazine. And then for their premier issue, take a DeRosa team bike uh, and jump it repeatedly um, for the, you know, this big cross-up photo. Right. Um, anyways, so, uh, now I'm back here. Um, I'm actually the editorial director for the cycling group. Um, it's a great cast of misfits. Um, we're all like our own little misfit Island, um, trying to corral <clears throat> all the editors and the the million and one different directions of the sports, uh, mountain bike, electric bike, and road bike action magazines are taking us on a daily basis with of course not only the new different new technologies but also always a million and one different forms of uh, communication it's no longer just a magazine of course instagram right. all the social stuff digital um and things like this so that's but, a longer answer but uh, but honestly just to, just real quickly so i mean like literally i was at work yesterday and i'm like yeah i'm, a, I'm the stinking old man on the porch with all the kids but um, I'm determined, bound and determined. You know, I uh, to just leap up the stairs on a daily basis. Um, I just, I, I just still absolutely love everything I do about this job. in Terms of being a storyteller, being in love with bicycles, and just finding so many great stories about people and new technology to 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 tell. Like I said, my job, uh, I, I consider myself Mexican conduit. Um, okay. Uh, for all these years, I've just been fortunate enough to go to places, be with people, and ride bikes. That so many other people who are fascinated with bicycles, like I am, you know, they don't get to be at the tour or you know the Hincapie Grand Fondo or Levi's Grand Fondo or or test ride in a new Colnago anything. So I just feel so incredibly lucky to have this job where I can act as that again conduit between these experiences with people who are just crazy about it, but don't aren't able to have the the best job in the world, which is what I consider myself having. <laughs>
0: Great. When's the last time you rode a road bike? Yesterday. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, the, the better question is when's the last time that I ride a mountain bike? <laughs> that was like <laughs> 15 years ago.
0: Okay. So flat bars is uh, is a long time history.
1: Yeah. Can't stand flat bars.
0: No, the reason asking is like, you know, as you said, you know, you, you write a lot of stories and, and your columns are like uh, always a highlight. Because you take people to different places or in time, and and uh, there's a lot of gravel in there lately. Yeah, that's why I was asking. What what bike did you ride this morning?
1: Uh, yesterday, it was a brand new Bianchi Specialissima. Um, so just a road bike, but to definitely to your point, I've become I'm a completely infatuated with gravel bikes. Um, I love riding now the same trails up here above Pasadena um, that I rode decades ago on a mountain bike, but now. On a gravel bike, um, I just you know, <clears throat> uh, except for the, the the few bikes that have suspension, like a Lauf or the Cannondale or any bike with an older fox fork, um, you know, the suspension's cool, like thirty millimeters of suspension, but um, right, I just it's just a new way of looking at riding off road that didn't doesn't exist with what I you know I mean mountain bikes to me and they're, they're they're super cool, but I'm an old guy you know old man on the porch like I said. So uh, I'm always like telling the kids, you know, get off my lawn with all their fancy bikes with, you know, six inch travel dropper posts and this, that. And the am like, there's so much stuff on them. The simplicity of a gravel bike in terms of how it makes you think on a ride and how you have to change your riding. Instead of, instead of just going through stutter bumps, you know, like on an enduro bike with 160 millimeters of travel and, you know, Fox 38 fork and just ugh, all this stuff, you know, that the kids I think take for granted, they're just, you know, roll over this stuff and, you know, as fast as possible. But on a gravel bike, um, I love the fact that you have nothing but like a 40 mil tire to act as your suspension. And you just, you know, yeah, you might have to go a little bit slower over the stutter bumps and stuff. And you don't get as big air, whatever, but it's just, it's a, it's a great way to rediscover dirt bike riding in the most simplest form, you know? Um, right. It's it, to me, it's really special on, on gravel bike. And whether it's either doing that, the fire roads or even like, you know, doing events like Dirty Kanza, you know, you just, it's just, I just love, I love drop bars. Every time I'm on a drop bar bike, I just, I feel so much better as a, as a cyclist and a, as a person. And okay. I, I call them yard bars on the mountain bikes. You know, they're like, you know, like they're like a three feet wide, you know, it just, I get it. It's a whole new uh, geometry for, for mountain bikes with the longer top tubes right. and, you know, the, the zero degree stem and these bars that are three feet wide. But I just I don't
0: know. So before before we go uh, in, into why this is so great now to have these gravel bikes, let's go back and I want to be curious, like how how you and was was the work of the magazine um, went along all those stages that uh, bikes took. And, um, and yeah, when when you started in eighty seven, I mean, there were basically what just Richard twenty six inch bikes, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, actually, when I started, I mean, the majority of bikes we got were city bikes. I mean, like you know, it was just you know, there were some mountain bikes, but we had, we tested, I remember tested a lot of, you know, quote unquote mountain bikes that were just so underbuilt. You know, they all had, you know, back then this was like the riser bar, you know, one of the cultural debates, you know, in later years was the whole riser bar thing, which was like, you know, another silly mountain bike creation of in terms of, you know, arguing about things, but you know, the original mountain bikes that I rode at mountain bike action had riser bars to them, but they were because they were like more like city bike bars, you know? Um, okay. And then, but yeah, absolutely rigid, you know, rigid bikes, brakes for under the, you know, under the, a lot of the bikes had brakes under the chainstay. And it's just so interesting now. You know, I go back and look at Mount Mike Action, the old issues a lot of times. And um just to see, you know, I mean, just <laughs> just the evol- the evolution has just been fantastic, you know. And um, and it's it's I mean, right, just this morning I just spent an hour editing letters because people for road bike action are just going, you know, there's always people who are saying disc brakes are the worst thing in the world. And it's just yet another debate I'm going through with readers for people who just, you know, and they're entirely within their right, but they just, they, they see no reason to have disc brakes on road bikes. Um, and it's similar to in 1991 when people are saying you need, there's no need for suspension on a mountain bike, you know? Right. Um,
0: so what, what do you answer these people if they say they're the worst or why did they say they're the worst?
1: Um, well, you know, road bikes, the road bike community in general, as a, as a stereotype, I mean, they're pretty, you know, kind of, you know, uh, legacy oriented. And it's all about what the pros ride. And so it's just, I mean, whatever. It, rim brakes work fine. The, my point is disc brakes work better. Um, it's just, that's why every, you know, every car, every motorcycle, disc brakes. I mean, we just, and uh, whether or not, Primoz Roglic and, and Tadej, Tadej Pogacar win the Tour de France and the Vuelta with rim brakes. It it's, doesn't even matter. Um, you know, what, it, the, it's just like, who cares what the pros ride? I mean, I get it because I, I look at the pros not for what they ride, but just for what how heroic they are. Um, but disc brakes are just, to me, they make, they make riding safer. And I, I will argue to the end of the day that anyone who can have a safer bike ride, it's a better bike ride, irrespective of extra weight irrespective of the aesthetic, irrespective of the complexity. You know, I mean, out here, it's like, I remember so many times people saying, oh, well, but on disc brakes, you know, like, you know, on the, you know, when it comes to a wheel change on the team car, I'm like, who has a stinking team car worth it? We're doing laps to Rose Bowl for goodness sakes. You know, your car's parked in the freaking parking lot, 20 feet away. Just, you know, I mean, anyways, it's just part of the whole road bike mentality that is, I find not only entertaining and humorous, but sometimes, you know, but take
0: take us back for you know you you come from Moto but what, what was the first uh, mountain bike you rode with disc brakes? Do you remember that and the brand? Ah,
1: uh-huh. well, actually, I sort of do. We were at Sun Valley, Idaho. It was a Trek, the Trek, a Trek bike launch with their hideous VR. I think it was called the VRX. It was like one, <laughs> Oh my goodness! It was a terrible bicycle, much like the very first Trek suspension bike, the eight thousand. Was it? Sorry, I can't remember the name, but that one. It was like the just. Uh, the single strut swing arm with an elastomer right. shock came out like in 1991. You know the thing, it was one of the few. I mean, anyways, I, I wrote a a critical, I call it a critical bike test of it that just almost um, it just caused a huge uproar at Trek. Um, they famously did literally designed T-shirts with my like my my face on a T-shirt with a big red slash through it because they were so insulted at how I you know diminished the repu- their reputation with this suspension bike but the suspension bike was horrible right that early one uh and then in you know many years later we got to sun valley for the vrx test and it had these cable pull brakes they might have they might have been diacon brakes i can't remember right now to be honest but i just remember we did this big long ride to the top of a mountain aided and abetted by a a chairlift to get way up to the top um and As we got unloaded, yeah, I must in the chair. We landed on the chairlift. There was this long single track descent back to it, down to a plateau. And I was up, you know, off the back, just kind of taking my time. And as I'm coming on the single track, I realized that there were no brakes, and I'm getting closer and closer to where the group, when they at the bottom of the trail had stopped to kind of collect themselves and wait for everybody to catch up. And I, <laughs> I went through there like a stinking bowling ball, just like, <clears throat> and I, I mean, I couldn't stop. And, uh, so, that was my my first version of disc brakes. Although I take it back, I'm lying. Because of course, Robert Reisinger, uh, an ex-motorcycle racer who invented the, also brought the upside down fork with a pro stop disc brake was in 1991. It was this huge rotor, again, cable pull. It was very primitive, but he came up with a disc brake only to complement the fact for his inverted fork, which was other, you know, big innovation on his part. So that was another bike. That would have actually been the first disc brake I ever rode um and then of course it wasn't just until when you know they finally getting hydraulics which it that's what just changed i mean i we've told people and like even in road bike action in the last couple of years I'll, I'll take a bike with rim brakes over a bike with cable pulled disc brakes any day cable pulled disc brakes the way every time i've ridden them on gravel bikes or road bikes they're just they're not they're not good
0: um but they were part of the stage right i mean i think that that's yeah, it's like uh, everything
1: it's all evolution right i mean when right. you know the you know yeah. I mean, it,
0: yeah. But, but going, going back you now, you just mentioned before, right. You know, you, today it feels like, you know, uh, like the battling for why suspension makes sense on, on mountain bikes, you know, 15, 15 20 years ago today, it's the battle. Why do this brake make sense on the, on a road bike? And it's like, uh, yeah, almost like a journey, right. That repeats. Yeah. you know. Replay. Um, yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, but the, in in terms of uh, you know the work that you and the magazine editors and testing and everything that, um, thinking back of like what what brands really took took feedback from you like you know you gave it on on this review from the track bike, and and said okay we learn from this and we try to work better.
1: Yeah. Um. I I don't know. It seems I I, I have a better memory of the things that we protested about, I mean, Mount My Caption played such a pivotal role. I mean, I'm not, not just to build myself in the magazine up, but I mean, back in the late eighties and early nineties, thanks to, you know, Jody Weisel, who's from motocross action, super smart guy, understands so much stuff. Um, and then we had, of course, Richard Cunningham was our technical editor. And, you know, so back then I was like, you know, again, there's another completely silly debate, but it's like, we start, we really started this whole thing about like, you know, why are, you know, the under the chainstay brakes that Charlie Cunningham and WTB had famously, you know, got going and which the industry, Charlie was a brilliant designer. And so the industry kind of took that early lead and started putting brakes under the chain stays the stupidest place in the world for, a, for a brake to be. Why, why would you put a special on a mountain bike? You know,
0: did you ever find out why he did this?
1: Uh, I've never actually talked to him about that specifically. I mean, I was just, you know, it was his own design idea. And there, you know, I mean, and it, even, a uh, couple couple years with more than that ago you know the road bikes even started putting brakes down you know the aero road bikes everything again not to pick on trek again but i mean trek did one a bunch of companies did bikes with brakes under the chainstay to make it aero and it's just like it's just the most ridiculous thing in the world you I mean you have to like you know to let the to let the wheel i mean talk about the disc brake being complicated you had to put the you know flip the bike upside down to disconnect the brake just so you can take the wheel out it's where all the, second like mountain bike, it's where all the grime went, the, you know, it was just muddy, everything. It's just stupid. Um, so that, that was like a big thing. And it, of is course, amazing,
0: mountain bike. Has- sorry. Isn't sorry? it amazing then, you know, with, with all your protesting, right. Which is, you know, when you say protest, you know, maybe you could say that your, all your feedback and review that these companies just continued, you know, doing things and some were good and some were better and some were yeah. hideous, you know, and. And, and isn't that a part of the magazine? Don't, don't you see this as as your role? I like the word Absolutely. protesting, right?
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, it's not like, I mean, there's so many smart people in the world in the bike industry. Um, and so it's not like, I mean, it's like today, this letter I was responding to this guy was calling calling us out because he says, you know, I'm wrong to insist that brakes are better. Um, and it's not just that, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just I, that I think disc brakes are better, although I do. But it's also understanding, like I mean, it's just it's you know it's, it's just it's this evolution. And right, right, right now, if you want to go buy a new Trek road bike or a new Specialized road bike or a bunch of other brands, but those Trek and Specialized, two of the biggest brands, a Canyon even, you can't you cannot buy a road bike from one of those brands with rim brakes. They don't even make them anymore, right? So right. when it, when companies is hugely successful. With great technology and and everything like those brands have made the decision to no longer make bikes with this with rim brakes, well, it's kind of like you know it's like I can go on about rim brakes forever, but if this you know if they stop making them, well, guess what? Everyone's going to be on a bike with disc brakes. So I I form my opinions as much as what I personally think as proven as I found for me proven in countless rides with disc brakes and versus rim brakes, but it's also just coming to grips with the reality. It's like you know, hey, they just won't even exist anymore. So it's right. like,
0: speaking of countless rides, uh, do you yeah. do you keep track of how many bikes you ride or you rode? Do you know that over the years? No,
1: that's actually kind of it's actually kind of a cute idea. I never thought about that. Um, I don't. I'm not a numbers guy, Dirk. You I mean you? know, okay. I mean, it's like to. Uh, I don't. You know, I don't use computers. I don't care about. Power. I don't care about how many miles I've ridden. Math, I mean, most people do. It just, to me, the bicycle is such a vehicle for clear thinking freedom that I want to escape anything to do with numbers. I mean, I've never, I'm not good with numbers because I've never even, I've never even took a math class after the eighth grade. I mean, I've just, I'm just, I'm not good with numbers. So with that in mind, on top of that, I just like, you know, I, mean, there's, I know people who they keep track of all their rides, their miles, yada, yada, right. the protein, the calorie, whatever, whatever. Yeah. I don't care. I want to ride my bike. I want to eat a glazed donut.
0: Right. My point is more like, you know, you've you've been doing this over over 34 years, right? And and year yeah. over year over year. And and I think uh the interesting <clears throat> part to talk to an editor like you is that this huge amount of experience yeah. is great to to dive deep to to, to deep yeah. dive, sorry. Yeah. And uh and uh and, and and expand on it. And then you know if you come to a company that just has their bike and their vision, right? Yeah. Uh, you as an editor take it and immediately compare it, right? You immediately probably if you sit on one bike, you can say, well, compared to this bike, this is better, and this is they have thought of this, and you know this company's in Italy and thinks about this like yeah, different. And so, does that ring some bells with you in discussions with 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 people that you know where they ride and what they yeah. ride is is uh, making a big difference.
1: Well, I, I like to think so. You know, I mean, I'm not just defending old guys like myself, but you know, that's, you know, with, with the, with the, the democratization of journalism, as it's called or known now with, you know, so many internet people and yada, 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 there's a million and one experts who have access to, you know, making bike tests and stuff like that. And, you know, more, more power to them. All I know is that like, you know, in touting for the brands of mountain bike action, road bike action, electric bike action, We have a base of knowledge that I think that far and away outweighs what the average Joe can have because we've ridden so many bikes. We've tested so many products. We've seen so much um, that the, so the basis of our evaluation is much, I mean, it's it's incomparable compared to, you know, 99% of just the, you know, uh, public journalists out there who are trying to, you know, create their own bike review websites or something like that. You know, doesn't mean they can have wrong opinions or the, anything like that. All I know is the, the the amount of information that we have to draw on is is valuable. It, right. it is in yeah, and I it's take an a certain ocean. level of pride in ocean. that. Yeah, so yeah,
0: along the way, you know, of your protests, what what people do you remember have been you know, in your memory, most uh, instrumental in 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 building the bikes were there today?
1: Uh, well, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, there's so many, there's so many smart people yeah. in the bike industry, just, but you know, if the first person, just when you ask asking the question, the first person that comes to mind to me is uh, Mr. Clonago. I mean, it just, okay. that guy is still he's such a hero to me in terms of, you know, you go to the Clonago bike museum, which is, unfortunately not public. It's upstairs at the factory in Cambiago. Um you've been there? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I've had the great fortune, the luxe. Again, that's where the 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 conduit comes up from, Dirk, because I've been able to go there a couple of times with Mr. Colnago, take photos, and I've shared those photos with readers who will, you know, likely never get the chance to be in that museum. That's the, to me the quintessential value of my job, what I love doing, because I can share something that no one's going to be able to see with people who would just, you know, love to see the Colnago Museum bikes. I mean, it's it's one of the greatest collections of bikes and bike technology in the world. And you can see what Mr. Colnago, that dude was so far advanced. In front of, I mean, he had brakes on the underside of the seat stays. He had aero bikes. He had the early Ferrari bike with hy- hydraulic brakes. I mean, that guy's done everything. And he's done everything that the industry has embraced and moved away from straight forks, round forks. There was another debate, you know, in the road world, we just, we spent so much right. silly time, like arguing straight forks versus curved forks. Um, but Mr. Colnago is just, to me, he is the, he's the, the altar at the altar of, of that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, even when I've ridden Colnago's, it's been hard. I've been, you know, in my back of my mind, I'm like, you know, not that he'd ever even read the test, but it's like, it's kind of hard to, you know, argue against Mr. Colnago, what he thinks is a good bike
0: um, what what does he think is a good bike? What did you argue? Anything with that has his
1: name. Anything that has his name on it. I'm sure. Well, um, <laughs> like.
0: Okay. Uh, I, I remember that he was very, very vocal when when suspension forks came. You know, said like that these things don't get on his bikes, right, on the road.
1: Yeah, 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 and you know. We saw, you know, there there was a high level of, you know, Forks came in 1993 and in Duclos LaSalle won Paris-Roubaix, you know, and it was the great, the great, you know, he just beat Franco Ballerini by about one half of an inch at the finish line at Roubaix that year. It was just fabulous. What a moment. Um, uh, and then in the next two years we saw, you know, suspension got crazier and crazier. Bianchi had the full suspension bikes, monoshocks. I mean, it's just, you know, they, they jumped on it and full and that Next thing you know, it's right back to stinking, you know, 28 mil tw- tubular tires and double wrap handlebar tape. And then, you know, but then, and then Trek comes out with ISO speed, right? And so all of a sudden that was a great turning point in the road bike world that we wrote a story on a year ago, now a few years ago is that, like I said, it's like compliance was the dirtiest word in the road bike world for years until all of a sudden, I think product managers around the world, Wayne Stetton and Shimano, they all started getting older. And guess what? You start getting older and all of a sudden you don't bend over as far, like, you know, for a drop handlebar and you might eat a little, you know, you get a little bit sore and, uh, right. I'm so proud of the bike sure. industry, the road bike industry in the last few years, Dave, you know, I mean, compliance has become like the biggest, most popular sales advantage on, you know, for any bike, you know, and through bigger tires or, uh, the ISO speed suspension on the tracks or, you know, I mean, a million of different people are doing different things on their bikes to make them more comfortable because for so many years, road bike performance was gauged on how much you could suffer just like the road, the road pros. Right. And it's just like, right. it's just, it's ridiculous. That, that's not the way to invite more people to get on bikes by thinking, you know, making them think they're going to be uncomfortable the whole time.
0: So that's a, that's a great, great picture. Now that that uh, compliance is a, uh, is one of the dirtiest words. You know, for a long time it's been the opposite. You know, yeah. So, but stiffer, harder, lighter.
1: Yeah. Stiff faster. stiffer, faster, harder, land lighter. Right. Yeah. And now we've now found out, like right, like again, the smart people have found out what you know what Steve Head did early in early studies, you know, and, and Steve Head another just brilliant, just fascinating, fabulous person. Rest in peace, Steve. Right. Um you know, Hey, guess what? Bigger tires with, you know, less air can actually make you go faster. Right. All of a sudden, so all of a sudden, you know, we've, you know, for a hundred years we I was like, everyone's putting like, you know, 150 PSI or whatever, 22 bar that would be on their, t- you know, 23 millimeter tires with 150 PSI. Cause well the Italians run it this way. You know, it's like, well, the Italians have been wrong, you know? And it's just like, it's, that's another argument I have these days with people. It's like, no, you need at least 120 PSI. I'm like, you're out of your mind It's Science, you know, the whole wheel and tire technology has completely turned that old fable on its head that the harder, smaller tire is the faster tire. Right. So um, it's been it's been great to see that happen, because, again, it's just about getting more people on bicycles and having them be safer and more comfortable doing it. That, to me, is like what I want to make happen in life. And uh, then thankfully, there's been all again, smart people at all these bike companies. Designing wheels, handlebars, frames, brakes, systems, tires. They're making it saddles, making it happen.
0: In this in this development, uh, and and your conversation with people, um, I know moto was always a big part of it. Um, yeah. And any stories you can share, like how how this this battle took place? Uh, like the, the the cyclists versus.
1: Yeah. One of the, well, I mean, just, you know, su- just suspension. I mean, I remember, you know, Joe Breeze, who I love pioneer of the mountain bike, you know, he wrote me a letter once. Cause I had written a story about how my wife back in like 1991, I, eh, probably 92, I put a rock sh- early rock shock, black one with the pink stickers on her Schwinn Paramount mountain bike. Right. And all of a sudden her ride just up these little Brown, these Brown, uh, the local fire roads here, she became so much happier. Riding that bike versus that had this, you know, before a a chromoly fork on the front, and so I just wrote about the fact. It's like, gosh, you know what? My wife is now happier and more comfortable and safer. Again, the same three things I still talk about for the road bikes today. And Joe Breeze wrote a letter to me, sort of like lamenting. It's like, you know, it's kind of like this. You know, well, you know, I, I get it. You know, that's all good, but you know, people should really learn how to ride a bike without suspension first, so they can learn how to ride and be more technical and you know, and I was like, well, that seems a little bit crazy to me. I mean, I mean it's, it's just like, I get it. And I'm almost arguing that point now with riding gravel bikes versus mountain bikes with six inches of travel, which you don't even, you know, you don't even feel the bumps. You All you do is just ride over them. But, you know, Breeze just, you know, now I remember him kind of wagging his finger at me, like saying, you know, you, your wife shouldn't be riding suspension until she really learns how to ride properly. And I'm like, properly? Who? Like, what does properly mean? I want her to... <laughs> The fact that it's she defined, wants to now. Yeah, exactly. So that was a fun one. And then I also remember like back again, late late nights, late eighties again, we got into some pretty good pitched battles with the guys. Again, Charlie Cunningham, Jackie Phelan, you know, they just made fun of us because we we're these motocross guys. And I mean the whole bike industry early on with Mountain Bike Action, we were fighting the bike industry because we rode bikes hard. We rode bikes, yeah, motocross inspired, you know, as we did. But also for me, a BMX inspired. I mean, when I got a Schwinn Stingray, you know, well, what did we do? We didn't just ride them around the block. We stinking made jumps, wood ramps. We jumped the heck out of those things. Okay. And with John, how many did John you it, Yeah. And sometimes they did. Sometimes they didn't. But we, you know, they. but you can't, you know, once the bikes go out, you can't. You can't, I mean, the bike industry had to learn, I think, that you can't control, especially with a mountain bike, you can't control what people are going to do with it, right? And then we had John Tomac as a test rider. Well, guess what? Tomac was not some subtle little, you know, rider on the block into the donut shop. Tomac was stinking the man. Um, So he was a test rider at the magazine? Yeah. Mountain bike action. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of our earliest issues for the first two years, just, I mean, that was, you know, people derided us in the bike industry calling it Tomac bike action because we'd have these pictures of Tomac on the cover. And Jackie Phelan wrote it. I wish I still had it. I thought about trying to find it again, but she wrote us this handwritten letter kind of with, with a cartoon graphic of Tomac bike action that she drew like a cartoon cover because, yeah, we tilted a couple covers back then to make it look a little more extreme on the downhill section that he was riding. Um, because, you know, the publisher, I think rightly is like, Hey, you know, we need to sell magazines and, you know, the cover of them just kind of ride in on a flat, uh, like on a subtle downhill. It looks better on a steeper downhill. Anyways, they, you know, Jackie wrote us this big, long letter, you know, and it was just like this constant battle that, you know, you guys are these motorcycle guys, blah, 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 blah. Well, 30 years later or whatever it was, lo and behold, Salsa comes out with a group of tires and parts called, you know, moto this and moto that, you know? Um, I mean, WT, w, WTB, excuse me, came out with tires like that. Um, and so it's just like, it's kind of like interesting. Like, you know, I mean, Charlie and and Jackie no longer are like, you know, running WTB. It's taken, you know, it's a whole new company really. But it's just funny how that all changed it from the earliest days of WTB. We were derided for being moto guys. And now all of a sudden they're naming their product line using the word moto in it, you know? Um, so that's always struck me as kind of, of kind
0: of ironic, um, so I mean, with Tomic then you also had a, a guy who who switched sides, right? From from BMX to MTB, from from or road. Um, was yeah, he yeah. was he riding road when he was testing for you guys? Or
1: no, <clears throat> I mean, his road thing didn't come until you know, <clears throat> excuse me, nineteen eighty nine, when he did when Charlie Litsky got him the deal with Seven Eleven for the kind of like a two year deal. Uh, he rode Paris Roubaix that year, and then that's when. Uh, in 1990, you know, it, it was, it was the year. Um, it's kind of a kind of, and I, I've never really found out like how it fell apart between him and 7-Eleven. But I think Tomac with Litsky, his agent probably realized they can make a lot more money riding the mountain bikes than just kind of being pack fodder at Perry roubaix And that's when he came back uh, in this late spring, early summer, of 1990 and made the handshake deal with John Parker Yeti and then, you know, rode for free. All he said, all he said he wanted from John Parker instead of money, because Parker couldn't afford really what he was worth. He wanted a mechanic and a box van. And so that was the beginning of the box trucks again, borrowed from the motorcycle world that uh, came, crept into mountain bikes. Um, And so with Bob Gregorio from Durango, who's a famous mechanic, um, you know, the two of them took on the Norba nationals. Um, and Tom, that's of course Tom Mack famously with the drop bars first on a steel bike. And then later on the C26 bike that he raced, um, at the Durango worlds, um, in with, you know, he was like, you know, I mean he was racing still with seven 11 shorts, um, but with a, a Yeti Jersey through the summer of that year. And then after the Durango worlds, of course, you know, Raleigh, Raleigh comes calling and offers him the big stinking six-digit contract, which I'm sure he knew he was capable of having. And you know, lo and behold, a whole another, a whole another, a whole another uh, legacy or state of affairs for Tomac and place of history took uh, took on uh, with Raleigh sponsoring him, and then Giant later on, and then his own bike brand.
0: All right. You just dropped another name, uh, a great name, uh, John Parker. Yeah. Um, he came from Moto
1: as well, right? Uh, wasn't he? John Parker came from the insane asylum. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he was a motorcycle guy. He was a hot rod guy, like a car guy. He was an everything guy. I mean, the guy's just—he's just, he's, he's, you know, yeah. Oh, uh, he came from the movie industry. He came from uh, and he came from everywhere, uh, which is just the concoction of John Parker, which makes him such a fascinating character. Um,
0: but, but isn't that also something that that was was uh, crazy at the time that that where people came from into the bike industry like how the bike industry became a pool for for so many different kind of characters
1: yeah yeah i mean i think you know again that was part of the whole cultural side to it that you know enlivened this the mountain bike scene versus the rope you know beginning to act the many letters and discussions i've had with people for 35 years almost is this like you know the i mean even i've I mean, even today I still hear people talk about that. Yeah. But, you know, the, the road bike thing was so uptight and, you know, just performance oriented and, you know, you go, you go, you went to the mountain bike race and people were sitting around, you know, Bob Marley's playing and people are drinking beer and hat I mean, it's called, you know, this, this crazy thing in life called joy. There was just more joy to be found at a mountain bike event than at a road bike event where it's just like, you know, Oh my God, your legs aren't shaved. You know? So, um, It was, it was, you know, and I mean, especially late eighties, early nineties, when the mountain bike boom was just, you know, everybody was buying mountain bikes. It became such a fashion statement and, you know, 80% of them probably got hung up in a garage somewhere or still, are still hanging in a garage somewhere.
0: Like the, you just mentioned like, you know, that how cool are MTB events? You've been to a million and one MTB events. What's your favorite? Oh, um, probably
1: two. that uh, that are are remarkably the same one would be the moab fat tire festival back in the day which really was just i mean again you've been there for you know what that's like um that was every every fall at halloween moab and you know rim cycles would open up their doors the whole town you know back then just a small mining town and i mean talk about freaks and geeks it was fabulous i mean just just, just crazy. You know, that's when Davis Finney would show up, and just so many people would show up because it was this huge cycling festival. The one year the Valentino Valentino Campagnolo actually was brought to the Moab Fat Tire Festival when they were breaking out to the bringing into the coming to the mountain bike scene. And I'll never forget the day they used to have this Halloween party at in Moab. And of course, again speaking to like you're talking about the craziness of people, it was. It wasn't X-rated, but I mean, there was there there was never any shortage of completely outlandish, freakishly underdressed, somewhat perverted <laughs> type costumes. And I remember standing in line outside the uh, to go inside of the Halloween the costume sort of party with Valentino, and he's like standing between these two guys, like one was like this big monster, like a you know this fabulous costume, like as a monster, and the other guy was like wearing fishnet stockings and a bra, and just you know. And I'm thinking, like, I mean, Valentino's mind was probably blown from here to Jupiter and back, right? Because here's this, the most proper Italian businessman, fresh in from Vicenza, <laughs> you know? and
0: shirt and tie. He's
1: just, standing, he, he's just like sitting, there and I was like, "Where the hell am I?" You know. And then the next day, on the the, on the they always have the next day after they would have a big parade down Main Street in Moab, and there's Mr. Campaniello with an Edo helmet. I think he was on a Klein back then, because Klein was one of the teams that he sponsored. Yes. And he was there he was riding in the front of the parade in the moment. I mean it's just like what I mean just again and I'm there as the conduit to to to, to report on that and just you know I'm so you know I'm that's I, I'm not to quickly digress but I mean I love my job as much for what each day brings but but especially for what each day in the past has brought and it's memories like that you know um, or being in Hawaii with HB and Paul Turner on the first Rockshock test, you know test I mean just my, li- my life is so full of fabulous memories that are intermingled with people from Roger DeCoster to Cindy Whitehead to Ned over and to Thomas Frischneck and, uh, and all the places I've been to. So, sorry, but see, I'm all, just even a simple question about that just gets me swept away. But just quickly, so then the other one would be the Garda right. Festival. Okay. Uh, going to the Garda Festival uh, the, for the first time, it was just like the you know a European, you know, largely German, Swiss, some Italian, going to Meckie's bike shop, meeting that guy. It was so bitching. I mean, just people so in love with bikes, and that's where I still have this famous photo that I love. Um, I used it at once in a magazine a long time ago. But there was a some guy there, and he had wrapped his RockShox fork legs in in uh, like a zebra skin, zebra skin, no, le- like a leopard skin, like fake fur on the lowers of the fork leg lowers, and it's just like right on. It was just so bitching that some guy like who would do that, right? This guy did, and it was great, you know. Um, Garda Festival, which is, of course, you know, just a completely different environment than Moab. But just it's the same that same culture of people feeling liberated and free, falling off their bikes, being so in love with a joint level of <laughs> affection for this simple thing called a bicycle. Um, it's just the, it's those things that just bring everything together. Oh, nice. sorry. One more. One more. Cool. It wasn't a festival, but the, but nothing. But if you anyone lucky enough. And this, of course, anyone over the age of forty uh, that may have been a Durango for the nineteen ninety World Championships, that event was just so. I mean, it was you know the, the coming together of America and Europe for the first time with the UCI and Norba Nationals, and just seeing all these euros showing up, you know, with from Frischneck. I mean. I mean, all these Swiss riders, obscure Swiss riders, no one even knew who they were, and yet they, they were fighting out with the, the top Americans. Giovanni Bonazzi was just, you know, this fabulous Italian downhill. with so much spirit in her. It was just great to be heard. of course. I mean, that that was such an important event. I mean, it's it's so oversold, but it's like it was like the Woodstock. It was like, I mean, so many things put together in terms of the importance in, in, in the history of the mountain bike that that event that Ed Zink put together in Durango, um, and just, again, the battle the battle that Ned Overin and, and Frischnick had was just incredible. And then Julie Furtado winning. I mean, so many things happening. It was just, a, that was, I ex- oh, love it. Wow. Great event.
0: That's a quick run through history here. But, um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, but, but, it, it, but it, 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 it's, it's great. And, and, I love and, uh, it. It's, it's feeding to my, my first question, why, why you love your job so much, right? Your work you do. Yeah. It. Um, because you on one side, you know, can can go to great, great places, witness uh great things like with Valentino and, and, and Moab. At the same time uh have this really very uh important uh responsibility to, to protest. Right? I, I really
1: and, you know, I, I'm I, I'm going to argue with Dirk, you keep using the word protest and I'm not, I, that's not, I mean, maybe it's a German English translation, but okay. I, you know, protest is, protest is also dear to my heart for the sake of protest and social movements, protesting to make right. things better. Um, you know, I don't think as a bike editor, I mean, as a journalist, it's never been about protesting. It's just been about observation. And I say, say to me, I've also I always used the word like people say, oh, that's a negative test. You know, if I say something wrong about something, I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, I've had this debate with, the president of bike companies, you know, when they say, you know, you gave us a negative review and I'm like, well, two things. It wasn't negative, but it's critical. And that's, that's our job. We have to be. And it's like, when you go to, when you see a movie review in the paper, if they just say that, you know, that Caddyshack, which is of course the worst movie ever made, people go on and said, oh, that's the greatest movie ever made, blah, blah, blah. And I went and paid $10 to go watch it. I'd be like, what was that guy saying? This thing is ridiculous. It's horrible. Right. And the same thing with. You know, whether it was John Burke or Mike Senior or Tom, Tom Ritchie, if they took issue with something we said about being critical about their bikes, I would just counter it. It's like, look, if you read a magazine and you're buying a new refrigerator and some guy says just because, you know, he knows the guy that makes refrigerators like, you know, this is the greatest refrigerator in the world. You spend money. You rely on what the person told you and you buy that and it ends up being a piece of junk what is that? What what role have you played as being, you know, it's, it's our job to be critical. We don't, I mean, I'll, I'll admit I'm at some point, I'm sure I got overboard and we became negative maybe, but it just, the the point and it's, to me, it's a really important point for being a journalist. You You know, you try to be as objective as you can. We all have our biases, but you want to be as objective as you can, as honest as you can, but it's okay to be critical. I have that I have that lesson to being told to my guys just this week. I told a guy he's starting to work for electric bike action. And he's like, you know, well, I don't want to say this because, because I'm like, Nick, that's, it's not your role to be the nice guy to whoever owns the company or the product manager. Our relationship is with the reader who are relying on us. Again, the most honest and objective observations or reviews of the products of which they may or may not end up buying. Right um if i had said that trek that early trek suspension bike was the greatest bike in the world i would i mean I, I i should have been i would have been i should have been run out of the bike industry and shamed with you know, forever i mean but instead that thing was stinking dangerous it was it was a terrible design there was no damping in that elastomer shock so i mean you would hit stuff and just it would spring you out of the saddle so badly like a trampoline i get they they you know they're trying to do you know make Jump in the suspension, but it's not our role to just endorse it just because it was Trek and they were an advertiser. I mean, absolutely not, you know?
0: Yeah. And, and Zep, I'm sure, even without knowing that, there have been people that you have had these arguments and critical discussions that came back weeks, months later and maybe said, Hey, Zep, thank you for being critical in the review.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, a guy, Dave Myers, who was one of the top salesmen at Trek, like, you know, 30 years later, he showed me the T-shirt that they had printed up. Again, I have one still with my picture on it with the red slash and it said zap sucks. And uh, he goes, hey, you know, we made up like we made these up for a big Trek salesman we had. And he goes, but he's like, you know, we thought you were a jerk. (laughs) We thought you were a jerk. He goes, but then when we had this bike out, we finally got a chance to ride it. The sales guys wrote it. He told me, he goes, I, he goes, yeah, you were right. That thing was, that thing was was junkie you know and i was like and then i remember one time we kind of panned we were critical of a schwinn homegrown suspension bike and the guys at schwinn in boulder when it was in boulder you know wrote us up the riot act and canceled ads blah 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 the same old same old and then like two years later i'm at an urban national in park city and one of them stinking schwinn guys comes up to me at a little cocktail party you know he's like swizzling around his little rum and coke or something goes yeah you know what i gotta tell you actually you were right about that. We knew that going into it, blah, blah, blah. I'm just like, well, fuck, fancy you telling me that now where, you know, how come you couldn't have said that, you know, when you were canceling your ads and complaining to my, the owner of my magazine that I should be fired for, you know, bad mouth in the Schwinn, you know? So you get, you know, yeah, it's happened. Oh. oh, well.
0: No, but, but, uh, thanks for, for, for going into this linguistic, uh, definition enough you know, of, of, uh, of, of the word protest, uh, um, You know, I've as you mentioned in the beginning, we we had the the great times working together at Mountain Bike, and uh, I yes. I got to work with you. And uh, actually, you know, what you I, were the best, Dirk. You were you know the best, by the way. Here's a, a fax. You know, I want to read a fax from you from January 19th, 94, Dirk. Oh boy, where are my slides, you stinking no good German hippie? <laughs> a fax from March 16th, 94, Dirk Belling. Oh boy. Look here, you no good whiny German! Blah blah blah. The Mexican. I was waiting for these faxes to come in. There, you know that um, you know part part of being you, you know, having this strong opinion is that uh, you also have this big, big heart, right? And and I think that's the passion that uh, you have been pouring into (laughs) what you do and how you do it has been fueling uh, so many people that uh, that uh, still stick to your. You know columns and and you report, yeah. you know, for the simple reason that your heart is is uh, is on the on the customer side, right? The guy who goes out, as you said, and pays ten dollars for the movie or pays yeah. whatever amount of money for that bike, right? And then goes like, "Whoa!" Right?
1: But as as my I, I appreciate that, but as my daughter still reminds me today, I could probably learn to be a little more subtle and a little less. Uh...
0: Well. <laughs> you know, we, there's, there's lifelong learning. And so, yeah, good luck.
1: <laughs> yeah. And just real quickly when it comes to faxes. So one just, cause I, I guess back, you know, and it was like, how many people are listening to this podcast are saying what's a fax machine? You know, I have yes. to go Google fax machine. So anyway, kids there, you know, long before email, the fax machine was a way to communicate. And so just real quickly, my best fax story is that I met, you know, Wayne Stetna, who was, you know, this, legacy hero of American cycling. I mean, Wayne, he's a, he's a president, one of the president or top guys, which I can't say which, you know, you have different terms. He's a top guy at Shimano. His whole family has helped to find American road cycling, everything from the little 500 race bike race that we've seen and breaking away that he did him and his brother, Dale, just, I mean, cycling heroes on the road. So smart. Every, I mean, I can't say enough great things about, about Wayne Setna. Also the fact that he's insane and that's why I love him. But Back in the day on the mountain bike thing, you know, he was this complete road geek, road geek, road geek, coming to mountain bikes, and we would have these kind of bat, pitched battles back and forth. But famously, at least even for him, I had to disagree with something he said once. So I wrote him a back, and you know, same thing. I like can big sharpie letters, you know, Wayne, you're an idiot. And he told me that, and I went on for you know why I said that. But he told me, you know, that thing was on his wall. I mean, I felt so stupid years later when we were talking about this at the inner bike one time because I'm just like. I mean, I felt ashamed. I mean, the nerve of some stinking skinny leg tattooed Mexican with a stinking fork cap in his leg to call Wayne Stetna an idiot was like so beyond the pale. But uh, we were kind of, you know, those were heady days back there when Mountain Bike Action was really trying to, you know, push the sport forward with new technology. And we were opinionated, brash. Um, But I just, once again, I I apologize to, to Wayne. I mean, he's perfectly good with it, but it's like. That was one where I really like, you know, that was a stupid thing of all people. You, you know, I wouldn't yeah. You're the same thing. You were like, you taught American journalists, or at least yeah. me, a far more professional way to go about the business. You know, we'd be like, you know, I I get a little, I get a little rush sometimes doing stuff and you're like, no, 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 no. We're going to wait for the sun to be in the right place. I'm like, wait for the sun. Let's <laughs> just get this done, you know? <laughs> and so I'm going to just say back to you, Dirk, that, uh, you taught me many lessons about how to be a better editor because you were complete and you were and you were just professional, you know. Whereas I was a little bit more slap, slap happy and haphazard about getting things done. Um, so,
0: the, the the mix it was the mix, right? And you know that, that I yeah, brought yeah, the yeah. German the German discipline, <clears throat> and you brought the Mexican creative
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: joy of life. Uh, so, though so being, you know how much Mexican is inside you? You know, is it, is it a, something you Not can enough. Share? Not enough. Okay. Yeah. But you, you grew up in Hollywood and, uh, and, uh, and,
1: yeah. um. I went to Hollywood high. I dropped out of Hollywood high to become a motorcycle racer. And then uh eventually that didn't come to fruition. Um, went to school and then when, uh, after I graduated from college, got kicked out and then went to law school, got kicked out of law school. And then just on, uh, as I always tell people literally what happened, I was on a dusty motocross track at Paris, California one day. And when Jody Weissel, again, the editor of motocross action, who I had known from racing motorcycles uh, literally came up to me, tapped me on the shoulder as I sat in my lawn chair and said, Hey, we're working on a new starting this new magazine called mountain bike action. Would you want to come work for us? And at the time, again, I, I grew up, I raced BMX, full BMX background, but I was—I've been a motorcycle guy from day one. So to me, literally, motocross action was uh, uh, was akin to the quote-unquote the Bible for me. I mean, my—I lived for motocross action magazine. So I was like, mountain bike action, whatever. I want to start. If I got the chance to work at motocross action, it was beyond a dream come true. So it was in October of nineteen eighty-six. I started, and I had to start right—you know—riding mountain bikes, which which meant nothing to me at the time. Uh, And then just, I know famously I, he wanted me to be the editor when the the then editor Ed Arnett left the following year, he wanted me to be the editor and I had no interest in it. I wanted to be a motorcycle guy because I was surrounded by motorcycle racers and everything. Uh, In the summer of 1987, uh, I went to the Norba national at mammoth mountain. uh, My first big Norba national race. Um, And I came along with a guy named Todd Smith, who they had flown out to become the editor of, mountain bike action well right. as it has as it unfolded we came back from that weekend i was in love with mountain bikes and absolutely the event at mammoth mountain swept me off my feet when i met ned over and lisa muick all the mountain bike races the smell of the pine trees the clean blue sky it was fabulous todd smith on the other end hated mountain bikes so as we drove down highway 395 i was going on about how great it was and uh he was going on about how much he hated it and we got back to high torque the magazine and. And I just told Jody, "Okay, can I be the editor now?" And he said, "Absolutely." And that's what got put me on a roll. It's taken me 35 years later to where I am today, talking to you. So,
0: awesome story. So let, let's go to Mammoth. So ha- had you been at a mountain bike event before the Norberg races, or was it your first? Was it your first? Was it your first ma- mountain bike event at that time? No,
1: I'd been to one a couple a couple local ones, but they're just like just small local events. But that was the first big one. And it was at mammoth, right? So going to a local event, a mountain bike race in, you know, Riverside, California is nothing at all. Like a mountain bike race at mammoth mountain. Um, what
0: what made mammoth so special for you?
1: Well, again, just everything, the it was just, just being up there with like for four days of like, you know, it, it was an intense interaction with the sport that I hadn't really gotten up until that point. Again, the just, I love being in the mountains. I love the mountains. Um, and so, again, the clearest, the, the pine tree scent in the air, the blue sky, the sun, the smiles, people drinking beer, dogs, you know, running all around, cute girls, whatever it was, um, everything, just, it just, it completely, like I said, I came away captivated with the sport of mountain biking.
0: Well, lucky you. Yeah. And so mentioning yeah. people like, you know, like Ned or, or or Lisa, you met so many people, you know, like Valentine yes. you mentioned, but, you know, thinking back. Who of those kind of like um, always come up to you when you think about, Wow, well, they, they, they made a difference.
1: Um. Well, yeah, I mean, so many people, I mean, you know, that's all the, the usual headliners, you know, Tomac and Ned. I, I was, a, I was captivated by Ned. I, I gave him the, I started calling him the captain because at one time that there, there was a specialized press release when Daryl Price was on the team. This is back again, a thousand years ago. And, they called for the first time they called Ned the captain on this press release. So I started calling him the captain, which he hated, but that, that nickname kind of stuck with a lot of people. Um, but again, you know, um, Lisa Muick swept me off my feet. Just so cute, cute as a button. And just, that. you know, I mean, as we all know, I mean, people, riding bicycles is hard. And when you see the racers, and that's why I've, I've been a racing, I'm a racing guy. Through and through, I love race. It just—I I was watching this, a series on on Formula One last night because the series starts this weekend, and just to hear Christopher Horner and those guys, just they—they, they, I mean, you hear those guys like I've heard so many motorcycle guys talking about just racing the race. Right. I mean, it's competitiveness. I just love it, and so to see people, I mean, racing a motorcycle is hard. Racing a bicycle is ten times harder, and when you see the kind of effort that all those people were doing, even the recreational sport riders it's so hard. And to me, the hardness of it and their, their capacity to suffer it, endure it with a smile. It's just, it's fabulous. Um, and so even though I'm going to, this, I'll, I've never said this publicly, but just for you, Dirk, even though when specialized tried to get me fired, not once, but twice uh, for things I, for protesting uh, thereby, as you would say, uh, one time I got into a dead over and, and this, and I'm sorry, Ned, but I'm just going to make this public now before I might get hit by a car and not be able to divulge this. I've referred to this before, but even Ned said that I deserve to get fired, which it broke. I, I'm telling you, I was in a phone call with him one time because I was complaining about why I specialized trying to get me fired. And when he said that to me, it broke my heart. It literally, because I was I was such a fan and still am, but that it was just like, Ned. You're talking about, and actually I'm going to say that kind of did get me fired. Cause as I've heard, this was one of the things that I'm, my undoing at bicycling magazine, because again, I protested about this specialized bike. <laughs> um, it was the bike, the first bike that came out with a brain shock and right. I'm sorry. I just, you know, they, and they called it, what do they call it? They made some biblical reference to it. Um, might, might come to me, but basically the earliest brain shock, I'm sorry. It just didn't react like a regular, you know, it, it was smart. Yeah. But it, It would it would open when you hit a bump, but it would close. I mean, it just it just didn't open and close fast enough to work as it should, right? So I just kind of protested about that shock, and it just specialized. They called. I mean, they went right to the top of Rodale and complained about me. And those guys, whether it was Nick Friedman or whoever, as I've heard the story from others who worked at Rodale, they got a little sensitive about me getting so mouthy. With was then a huge advertiser. Um. but when I heard, when Ned told me I deserve to get fired, I was just like, Ned, you know, you're saying I deserve to lose my job, which means like I couldn't pay my mortgage. I had a family to, to k- take care of, like all these things. And you're saying I should lose my job like Specialized was trying to make happen just because I was, I didn't think your stinking shock on the bike was like as good as you guys were saying it was. I I was offended by that, you know, and and it hurt, you know. And then when I came back to High Torque, that literally I was there for like 2 weeks and when the word got out that I was starting a magazine specialized, you know, again another, you know, another guy who used to work for me, I'm not going to mention his name, but a guy who I'd hired to be an editor who who's then moved on to work at Specialized, he too was advocating that I should lose my job at High Torque just be, just because of the threat that I posed about the history of being, you know, of being angry with Specialized. And I just like I just, it, again, it's just shocking to me that the, the level of power that people think they should have or could have over other people's lives, because I'm I'm affecting what people might think about what they're selling, you know, um, it gets, it, kind of gets, it gets personal. I,
0: I think what you just shared, thank you for, for your openness and, uh, and, and, uh, and sharing this here, um. You know, I, def- I definitely feel w- with you in, in that sense of, um, your protest, uh, being uh, from, from where it comes from, from the heart, right? And, and has yeah. been, uh, for the other side, maybe in a, in a way they, they didn't get. But, you know, luckily, uh, you're still around and specialized is still around. And, um, as, as we just went through the past, uh, uh, hour talking, the, the culture is such a great mix, right? It's, yeah. it's almost worlds collide, right? And and yeah. worlds collide, egos collide, and and um, I think that's why, yeah, so many like you and me love our job inside the industry, right? That we can argue, we can protest, you know. And in in some areas, um, there's a protest culture, in others not. And still, it's as you said, you know, it's it's for good reason, you know, for the customer. It's a, it's a power game, and and so again, thank you for sharing. And I'm glad that, uh, in a way, you know, if, if you look back, this change, did did it really matter to you? Like you know, as you said, you know, changing the the job and at that time, of course. But you know, now that we can look back at these things, how did you say when you get pissed? I don't know. And how did you just said like you had your term? Like what what's your 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 lingo for uh, getting fired? Licked. Like, okay.
1: I guess. I don't know. I mean, it was-
0: Anyhow, let's go back to something more, more fun uh, at that point. Yeah. Uh, gravel bikes. Um, yep. Because you and I share the same uh, love and passion for it. Uh, this one bike that, that brings together so many things that we had yep. looked for, wished for, craved for, tried to build ourselves. Um, if you just look back, is there, from your view, like, you know, what what makes – these gravel bikes today, so much fun.
1: Tire clearance, tire clearance. You can't, you can't have a good gravel bike without tire clearance. And so again, just like in the last five years, you know, we were, when the gravel thing started happening, I remember we got like, you know, we got a light speed like five years ago, probably, you know, there's go, like, oh, here's our gravel bike, you know, and we look back at it now, it's just like, wow. You know, but even then we, we, we protested in the magazine that, you know, it's like, you know, you're calling, even at the early days of still trying to figure out what a gravel bike was. You know, I mean, it it still had, I mean, it had room for like a 28 mil tire, right? And it's just like we even knew back then, this is not, you you know, for what we're doing, you got to have bigger tires. And uh, I just love the fact that a gravel bike, like within one bicycle, you can do anything you want. It can, you know, even on knobby tires, you can still, it can still be a road bike. And then, like they say, when it comes to the dirt road, you can keep going. And so it's a real dual purpose bicycle, like the dual purpose motorcycles that have you know preceded it. Um, and it's just simple. You know, again, it doesn't have all that crap on it that mountain bikes have these days. It's lightweight. Um, and and every time I come in on a fire road, I can't help but just pretend in the back of my mind, a little small piece of my mind. I'm like, look, I'm just like Johnny Tomac at the Durango World downhill. I'm on his you know, drop bar Yeti, you know. Um, it just, it adds, it brings a sense of thrill to riding off road that I just don't get with mountain bikes with all the suspension and all, you know, all that stuff on them, you know, because it's just too much stuff. So, um, and it's been, it provides people, I didn't get this at first, but I remember I was talking to a, a some guy at the handmade bike show once and he it was an older guy in Colorado. And he just said, you know, I like the gravel bike because now I can ride my quote unquote road bike, but I ride it off the road and I don't have to deal with cars anymore. And ultimately right. there are, between the gravel bikes and the mountain bikes. To me, it's, it's just being in nature, nature. I wrote a column about this last year. It's this, it's, it's, it's nature, mother nature. It's the parks, it's the forests, wherever that gets us away from the stinking, you know, cemented over, you know, cities that we live in with all, in just the peace and quiet of nature. And it's like having that sense of like David Thoreau, you know, at Walden, right. just where you're just getting removed from everything at, That's what the gravel bike, I love road bikes, but the gravel bike allows me this extra sense of, of, of nature that I can't get when I'm riding through downtown LA, you know, to get to the beach. Um, and that's, that's the great thing about the mountain bike and the gravel bike, your uh, opportunity to have a vehicle to take you to places that you normally might not ever get to and have that sense of, of appreciation of nature.
0: Very nicely said. Yeah. I want to go back uh, at the end to, to one point that you mentioned at the very beginning, um, because I know there are some, some great stories, but the part of racing as you've gone through with BMX moto yep. and, and then able to witness what aspect, you know, um, from your point of view has, has racing brought to, to bikes?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. Um, you know, the racing thing, I mean, racing, you know, I mean, as you well know, you know, racing in America, racing, mountain bike racing is not like it once was. I mean, I was so fortunate to, to live through the 90s when racing, yeah, it was commercialized. It was crazy. Um, it was exploited, whatever, you know, some naysayers may say about it. But, man, and it was, you know, the doping, you know, with Chiodi, everything, blah, blah, blah. But, man, it was intense. And the race, the thing that I liked about the quote-unquote racing was even with guys like Paul Turner or or Richard Long at GT, it was it was a, their inner sense of competitiveness. That's what drove them, and I love it. That's what's just so bitching. People are just trying to compete, and then you, you know you had like Turner and Rockshocks, you know, and then you had Doug Bradbury, you know, this freaking hippie <laughs> up in Colorado, you know, who yeah. and they're they vying for the you know suspension fork market and. It just it, that to me was a type of racing, you know, and then Trek brings out like the show of fork, which came and went because, you know, show is like, this, you know, whatever, but just the, just the battling between Doug Bradbury and Paul Turner. And I think I aided and abetted that as much because I was in love with Paul Turner and always will be. But it was, at, again, at Park City, Northern National one year when Roger Goffin, who worked for Answer Products, came up to me. And I've known Roger from the motorcycle days. He goes, hey, so is there, is there any products out there that, you know, that you think might be kind of cool that we should look into? You know, because Eddie Cole, who owned Answer, was, a, again, a very competitive guy, old motorcycle racer. And honest to goodness, I'm not just as the truth as I know it, as I remember it. I'm like, well, you know, there's a stinking bearded hippie over here in this old Chevy, like a GMC Astro van, He's got this fork. It's called a Manitou fork, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not saying I'm the guy that maybe the, I don't know if it was the first guy or not, but I know that Roger had never seen, didn't know. Anyways, they came together and then answer bought Manitou. And that became like, you know, the Russia versus America Cold War battle for front fork supremacy. Right. And then just talking to Turner one time, I'm like, you know, because Turner and Rock Shucks was spending so much money buying athletes. And just I mean, I was like, dude. Why would you like like one particular rider? Why would you pay that guy fifty thousand dollars just to use your front fork on his bike? Because you know, he's gonna be a national champion cross-country, maybe. Uh and Turner, I'll never forget. It. He goes, because he's like it's simple. Once you open the door and they're able to stick a hand in, and then guess what? Next comes an elbow, and after the elbow comes a knee, and after the knee, they walk through your door. And I was just like, bingo. That's competitiveness. And whether it's Mert Lawwill, who did his own, you know, came from motorcycles and brought some s- suspension dimes with his, his leader fork and the homegrown Schwinn bikes and the Yetis, to Roger DeCoster. I mean, it's just that competitiveness, and that's one thing that's driven me as long as I've been an editor. I've always wanted to, you know, like I've always said, like, you know, when when Cunningham, Richard Cunningham took over mountain bike action after I left, you know, I t- I was always public about. him. like, hey, that guy is smarter than I will ever be, but my goal is I will outwork him day in and day out um, there's been plenty of editors who've come and gone um, that are smarter than me on technology who are definitely stronger than me on a bicycle and all i got in me is a stinking mexican farm worker spirit where it's like i'll sneak and outwork all you bastards because that's what mexicans do you know and uh so um it's 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 a sense of competitiveness and then again the, the just the racing thing and whether it's chasson you know and Caroline Chasson, who just won my heart at the first time I saw her at Veil Worlds. I mean, how this woman could be, I mean, fierce. Fierce is the only word that comes to mind when I think about Chasson on a mountain bike. And then, of course, Nico and so many others. Um, it just, it's just this this fierce inside determination to do better than the other guy. And that's, I mean, I grew up racing bicycles and motorcycles, and I've just never been any good at either one of them, really. But inside my mind... I just, I love racing. Um, And again, with bicycles, I just know how hard it is to race a bicycle for, for Nico for you to win, you know, so many of those, those races in a row, you know, I mean, when downhill races are determined by a split second and that guy won so many world, like all those world championships and same with Shassan. I mean, how do you do that? It's, it's, it's like the improbability of that happening is beyond any kind of rational thought. And yet, the two of them especially were, you know, Aaron Gwynn later on um, and for, for Tata to win all those races. And then, and then for Paolo Pezzo and Gunrida to come and win those kind of that. I mean, so many things can go wrong on a bicycle, you know, whether it's a flat tire or you just hit a rock and you twist your parts right. and they were still able to do that. It, to me, it's just, it, I'm fascinated. It's like, you know, being fascinated by science. I'm fascinated by their level to be so competitive and to suffer so hard in bike races uh, like Travis Brown, you know, just so handsome and just—I mean, just when I, just to be so so close in with mountain bikes, especially you're, you're you're right there on the sidelines with them. You're suffering as they see you see them going by you, sweating and just—it's it becomes personal, you know, for as just as a spectator, you can't separate yourself from that struggle and. I remember being at Breckenridge when Travis won a title and his dad was there, you know, and his parents had always been part of his racing effort and to see Dean standing outside where he couldn't, you know, and here's Travis being celebrated for a national champion and Dean's outside. I'm like, Dean, what are you doing out here? And he goes, he's, he's like, Oh, I'm ready to pee myself. I'm so excited. And he goes, but I can't get in there because I don't have a credential. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So I literally, I took my credential off my press credential and said, you deserve to be in there more than I do. And he put it over his neck And he walked in there to be with his son, and I got to. I mean, I'm still. I get chills right now thinking about it because the father and son, or mother and son, or mother and daughter, father, whatever the parent-child dynamic, is so fabulous in life and what we're able to teach our children and the role models we can be. And when, and as a parent as I am, so proud of what my daughter's achieved, I can only imagine after all the years of seeing Travis, you know, up and down in the travails of breaking his leg, this and the other, for Dean to be there. It was just. It was. It just, uh, yeah, 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 I love it. And uh, that was that was a really special moment because um, the, the the Brown family just they're such great people. Um, and Travis was, Travis is one of the smartest bike racers, you know, stylish as he was, but you know he helped with you know the mixed wheel movement at Trek. Um, He's done so much work with suspension. And I mean, the guy is so stinking smart and thinks, and like, just like Ned, in terms of how they think, and Frischi and so, I mean, so many of the guys, they aren't just riding bikes, right? They're just, they're thinking about so much about how the bike works and how to make it better. And it's it's from racing. This was, again, just, this was like one of the big debates I had with Richard Cunningham. I you mean, know, he's like, racing doesn't improve the breed. And I'm like, Richard, you're, the, you're, you're so smart than me. You're, I mean, you're so smart, but you know what? You're an idiot. I mean, it's like that's the stupidest thing in the world to say. Racing doesn't. Nothing improves the breed of bike, of bicycles and motorcycles, everything than racing. And I've I've, I've literally used that as a question, whether it's from Mert Lawwell to I mean, so many designers and stuff who are again know stuff. And I always ask him the same question. Hey, just just out of curiosity, let me ask you this question. And it's with RC in mind. Does racing improve the breed? And like Mert Lawwell, one of my big heroes from Monday Sunday and a national champion, fabulous human being. He's just like. He like looked at me one time. I'm in his garage up in in, in uh, Tiburon, and I posed him that question. And he like looked at me like you know you can. You know, it felt like he was going to tell me to leave or something because he was so like it's like what kind of insane question is that? Of course, racing improves the breed, right? And it it just does, you know. I mean, it's like we would not be here with Mount Mike today if it wasn't for racing. The technology and just the amount of money and manpower that so many companies. Into products that either succeeded or failed it wasn't for the sake of people to ride around the park and get some cotton candy, it was because of racing, it was because people wanted to win races. <laughs> that's, that's what it's about in life is be beating the freaking other guy, you know. Um, uh, sorry, yeah, I don't know if that even answered the question, but I just love racing,
0: yes, no doubt you made the point, and uh. <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's just it's just uh great listen to this because it's it's coming deep deep from your heart right and and uh zap thank you so much for sharing all these very emotional and honest stories about your love yeah. for the cycling and for the community and f- about why you love your job so much it has been an incredible First part of the journey, and then, and, and um, you know, for all of you out there who want to listen and stay close to Zap, you know, um, we'll put the in the show notes his his column links so you can follow him. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll find a, a site. We have to find a second opportunity to to talk about more more of the stories, um, whatever they are. Uh, so, thank you so much. Um,
1: My pleasure. Stay My pleasure. safe.
0: You know. Um, and uh hope to see you somewhere soon at Eurobike again. Okay?
1: Hopefully. Ride off and ride safe. Bottom Thank line.
0: You. Ride safe. Okay,
1: Bye-bye. I'll be Zane.